Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to put you in a scenario a bit seasonal. Oh, yeah? A seasonal Halloween scenario? Do you you want to go with me on a hike? Yeah, let's go on a hike. All right, it's late October, and you are on a solitary fall hike through the woods. And the leaves are starting to turn orange and red, the air is dry, and you feel like an adventure, so you head off trail. Okay. Not always a good idea, but... Let's just say you're brave. Yeah, this is how all terrible stories start, how all tragedies begin. You leave the trail. Well, it starts very nice. So you're off trail and you find a little mountain brook okay. and it's twisting among the rocks and you decide, oh, how sweet. I'm going to follow this upstream. Maybe I'll find its source. And on the way, you come across a cluster of what look like oak trees, thick trunks uh, with roots spread out, exposed over the bank of the brook. And there's an odd smell. It's a little bit sweet with just a hint of deep earthiness, kind of like overripe fruit. Okay. So you approach the stand of trees and the ground is covered with a mat of these beautifully colored fallen leaves. And as you come near the trunk of the nearest tree, your foot knocks against a smooth stone tangled in the outer roots. But wait a second. That's no stone. Uh-oh. It's smooth and white, partially buried with two eye-shaped hollows. And then suddenly, with a rushing sound and a scattering of leaves up into the air, something envelops you. The light gets blotted out. You feel these wooden fibers pressing into your skin from all sides. What's going on? You struggle to free yourself, but you find that you're becoming sluggish, disoriented. There's a powerful smell. Your throat burns. And then the digestive enzymes come. Ah. Another visitor disappears into the grove of the killer tree. Ah, I knew it was a killer tree once the the digestive enzymes in the wood started happening. <laughs> because my first instinct would be, oh, something was in the tree. I got myself tangled and then something was in the tree and it jumped down upon me, some sort of uh, predator of some sort. I guess that's the more logical thing to think, right? Yeah, at least until the wood comes. Or that uh, somebody has set some kind of trap for you. Yes. This is of human design. That's probably what I would guess. Uh, but, Robert, well, what first comes to your mind when I say killer tree? I'm sure you've got like a fictional uh, uh, anchor point that you go to. Oh, I mean, there's so many uh, there's so many examples of killer trees and in, in, especially in fantasy. Right. I mean, it makes you think of the Ents uh, or especially like the dark sort of tree people from Dungeons and Dragons. I'm or, not really familiar with those. Well, yeah, what well, happens when you fight a tree person? Well, you know, they're big, they're wooden, they're uh, they're <laughs> lumbering. <laughs> Uh, I think there are a few, a few different varieties. There's, they're basically, you know, they're animate trees and then they're sort of wooden people and they're good, good ones and they're bad ones. Of course, the, the ants we encounter in Lord of the Rings are, are, are good. So when you're battling a, a tree person, do you, like, do you have to have a, a paladin with a blessed wood chipper or something? I don't recall there being a requirement for magical weapons. Of course, you know, some creatures can only be fought with natural weapons, but, uh, with, uh, with magical weapons. But I believe that, uh, the tree creatures in this case are just big, tough trees. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. They're, 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 they're large. Their flesh is different than us. So the idea of them becoming animate, the idea of them turning against us is terrifying. Uh, and they do turn against us. I mean, we live in a very, um, 
uh, tree friendly city. So anytime uh-huh. the, the wind blows, anytime the, uh, anytime the rain freezes, uh, the, the trees rattle and threaten us. Oh, and I when te- they fall, they can cause significant damage and even loss of life. There is a killer tree hanging over our house right now. Yeah. Uh, Rachel and I are working on getting something <laughs> done about that. But yeah, it's this old dead pecan tree. It just looks like it is aching to plunge its killer branches through somebody's roof. And so, yeah, there are, of course, uh, killer trees in reality. But the kind we're thinking of are the ones that are a little more conscious with some directed action, oh, some yeah. agency, maybe some arms, some tentacles, some some gaping maws with thorn teeth. Oh, of course, one of the big ones, and this one entered my mind when you were uh, taking me through this description, was, of course, uh, in Poltergeist, there's that... Just horrifying scene that scarred me from an early age uh, where you have, you have multiple things going on at once. Like there's the, the creepy clown, um, doll on the bed, but then there's the tree outside the window that's like trying to eat the child. Man, so I haven't seen Poltergeist in years. I honestly don't remember this scene. I guess oh, I've yeah, got to go back to it. It was one it. of many, you know, they, they throw a lot of nightmare uh, imagery up against the wall and up a fair amount of it sticks. So I got to tell you that this episode, I wanted to do this topic because I was inspired by having recently watched the William Friedkin horror movie The Guardian from 1990 for the first time. Uh, I remember the trailer for this. is like a creepy babysitter, a creepy nanny, but uh-huh. I never saw it, so I don't know what the what the gimmick is. Well, I'll give you the premise. It's about a couple who has a baby, and they're looking for a nanny because mm-hmm. uh, they both want to go right back to work immediately. So they're looking for a nanny to take care of their child, and they end up going with Camilla, the British nanny, okay. who unfortunately is a druid who's got a tree friend and her tree friend is a killer tree friend and uh-huh. she likes to take babies to the tree sacrifice them to the tree except it's this weird thing where the tree sort of absorbs the baby and then you can see the baby's face embedded in the surface of the tree so I guess that the baby kind of melts into the tree and becomes petrified huh. anyway she, she's an evil druid kidnaps babies sacrifices them to a killer tree there are scenes where the tree kills people there's like uh, Camilla gets attacked in the woods by some by some creeps who just happen to be hanging out in the woods and the tree defends her by essentially smashing them and tearing them up so would you say this is part of the druid exploitation uh <laughs> movement of the 1990s man if only there were such a genre i would be all over that i would be like a film scholar of that <laughs> genre but anyway so do i recommend this movie it's not a good movie but it's william friedkin so it's like a well-made bad movie if yeah. that makes any sense yeah he there's a there's a certain segment of his uh, filmography that that definitely fits that uh, uh-huh. category always worth checking out if you're a, f- a fan of his but mm-hmm. you know maybe not top shelf I guess I'd say it's not good, but it's worth seeing, especially since, uh, spoiler alert, the climax of the film involves a chainsaw. Oh, well, of course it would. Um, of course, there are plenty of other cinematic uh, examples of animate trees, murdering trees, and just murderous plants. Um, aside from Ints, there's uh, the, I don't know if anyone remembers the sexy matron tree from The Last Unicorn. No. Where the tree becomes uh, animate and uh, attempts to uh, love our hero to death. Or one of our two heroes, the the male uh, hero, Smedrick, I believe, and uh, uh, so, that so, sounds troubling. Oh yeah, she has like huge bosoms and all. Um, weird. It's it's a weird it's a weird film when you look back on it. Lots of strange elements. Uh, Scott Smith's novel, The Ruins, and the oh, 2008 yeah. movie uh, adaptation of it that concerns man-eating vines. Yeah, and they're sort of uh, infectious, right? So it's not so. just that the vines reach out and grab you, but that there's a spore element where they contaminate you with some kind of plant germ cell. Does I think make- so, yeah, yeah. 
which is interesting when we start getting into some of the the technical possibilities of man-eating plants. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, I already mentioned poltergeists. There are, of course, the vines in Evil Dead that are rather notorious. Yeah. There is some uh, man-eating plant action in 1987's A Chinese Ghost Story, which I have not seen yet. I haven't but, seen that either. Uh, after reading a synopsis of uh, part of it uh, yesterday, I, I, it's moved back up to the top of my must-watch list. you got The Whomping Willow in Harry Potter. You have um, you have a version of the the evil dead vines that are mentioned in uh, Cabin in the Woods, the quote angry molesting tree, Ugh. which I think you only see like a a, 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 a fra- just a fragment of it as it uh, like snatches a guard uh, in one scene. Man, Cabin in the Woods is full of just great little freeze frame moments. Oh yeah, tremendous. Uh, there are various kaiju that have, you know giant uh, monsters. That have uh, had plant elements to them, and certainly plenty with fungi elements to them. And I believe one of Michael Shea's uh, Nift stories features a carnivorous plant, kind of like a, a Venus flytrap, except it has a like a humanoid female part in the middle to lure males inside it. Weird. But uh, I don't have a clear memory of that, so maybe I'm imagining it, but it seems like the kind of thing that would be in one of his stories. Now, almost all of these seem like modern fictional inventions. Now, do, do, are there are there animated trees, animated predatory trees or plants going back in, in mythology? I would expect to find such a thing. But... I expected to find some better examples, and I was not able to find any. Um, not to say that I didn't miss something, but the, close, the, the closest example that I came across, and I got excited about this, was um, is, the, is this example of something called a jidra. Uh, and this is from the traditions and folk beliefs of the Middle East, but here's the caveat, as related by medieval European travelers. Mm-hmm. And this is a theme we're going to see time and time again. Yep. The plants become animate and man-killing only in foreign environments entered by Westerners. Right. European and American travel writers and mm-hmm. catalogers of things going on in places other than Europe and America and the Americas talk about man-eating plants. Right. And in this case, as again, as related by medieval European travelers, and this was explained uh, by Carol Rose in her always excellent Giants, Monsters, and Dragons encyclopedia, uh, the idea is this thing emerges from the ground like a plant. And the it's, jidra, you mean. The jidra. Yeah. And it's rooted in place, and it just consumes anything in its vicinity, uh, you know, cattle, small animals, and, of course, humans. The only way to kill it is to detach it from its root, essentially chop it down, and if you do, then you get to harvest its bones, because I guess it has bones, which would be valuable. Um, <laughs> it has bones? Apparently. That's the, according to the myth. So I don't know if this means that it literally has bones, that it's a, like a rooted mammal a creature, vertebrate creature of some sort, or if bones, and by bones we mean it's like it's, it's wood, you know? You know, that does sound valuable because you could probably use the bones of the Jidra to make a totally vegan stock. Right. Oh. So you roast the bones and then make a make like you'd make a chicken. Yeah. Stock yeah. Or something. But yeah. this would be vegan. I suppose. Yeah. Depending. Well, depending on exactly how you classify a monster like this. Now, I should also add that it's thought that this myth probably also derived from the mandrake. OK. So, you know, European influence, idea of the mandrake, which is this kind of like animal um, vegetable hybrid creature. And then this kind of evolves into this tale of the Jidra. OK. 
And I, I find it curious, though. You know, I looked around for more examples, couldn't find it. I would have expected Pliny the Elder, uh, the noted uh, first century Roman historian, <laughs> who often spoke of foreign monstrosities, to have like a clear-cut example of a man-eating plant in a foreign land. Oh, yeah. Pliny the Elder is like the Internet, right? Like, if you can think it up, it's on there. Yeah. And it... it if you can imagine it, Pliny wrote about it. Yeah, like pe- like beast people in other lands, uh, the people with the bellies that had that had mouths in them. I mean, all sorts of strange humanoid monstrosities, beastly monstrosities, dragons, etc. So why no man-eating plants? I don't know. Now, Robert, did you ever see M Night Shyamalan's The Happening? I did not. I saw the trailer. It happened. There yeah. was some happening, and it happened, and it was about trees that were trying to kill Mark Wahlberg. I have no idea why they'd want to do that. Uh, but it wasn't really predatory behavior. It was more like vindictive jerk behavior. So the trees didn't want to eat us. They were, like, tired of us being abusive to them. So it was even less, uh, in, less biologically sound. Yes. <laughs> Than, uh, than any of the examples we've looked at thus far. So, yeah, obviously this idea of the killer tree, the man-eating plant, is one that captures our imagination very easily. And I think I've got a theory as to why. And let me know what you think of okay. this. I think the reason we like the image of the killer tree and it shows up in all these stories is because the idea of a man-eating plant has a certain level of why not to it. Right. So there are creatures in nature that kill large animals with claws and teeth and tentacles and venom and such. And plants have things that are equivalent to this. They've got thorns, vine tendrils, poisons. Uh, Trees are much larger than us. And in one sense, they are apt to be much, quote, stronger than any animal prey that would try to resist them. So why not? You know, if the continent of Australia can produce an animal that has the fur of a mammal and the bill of a duck, why couldn't some deep, unexplored forest harbor a tree that can reach out with a vine covered in venomous thorns and snatch a hiker, wrap him up real tight until he turns blue, and then pull him down into a crevice in the root structure and treat him like a soft, salty meal? Yeah, I agree. I think on, on, on one hand, certainly we look at all the variety in nature. We see what's possible within nature. And you ask yourself, well, why doesn't this exist? Maybe it does exist. Maybe some, you know, a third or fourth hand tale that I've heard about a man eating plant is from a traveler is actually true. And on the other hand, I think uh, the reason it's so appealing is because it's abhorrent. Yeah. The idea it's crossing categories. Exactly. That inherent taboo. Yeah. Because I find myself kind of like if I see an example of an insect praying on a uh, on a vertebrate, uh, yeah, like invertebrates eating vertebrates. Yes, it's yes, something yes. that kind of like it's it feels wrong. wrong. When but a course, spider's got a frog in its yeah, web, yeah, it's like that. You, you're not supposed to move in that direction. Stick to your your own uh, invertebrate kind. But of course, it, it happens. Now, of course, I wouldn't actually blame the spider for that. No. I think that's perfectly fine. But. No, 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 no judgments, spiders. But. But it, from our human standpoint, it's even more abhorrent because right. we've largely removed ourselves from the risk of predation, like which is a pretty remarkable thing in the grand scheme of things, right? It, and so we, we don't have to worry about other animals eating us. And the idea of another animal eating us is strange and awful and terrifying, even more so the idea that a tree could do it. Yeah, yeah, it totally seems it, it goes backwards on the the chain, the food chain, right? It's mm-hmm. reversing the food chain. That's, it's not supposed to be this way. Uh, so except for the fact that we've never seen things like this happen at an intuitive level, it's like what's so implausible about it? Uh, then at the same time, I think we may be able to come up with some good biological reasons we don't actually see organisms like this. But according to some 
we must say, not very credible accounts, <laughs> there is nothing all that implausible about the man-eating tree, the killer tree, because people have written about these things as if they actually exist it, w- within the past few hundred years. Yeah, uh, and, and that hearsay was more more powerful yeah, in previous times. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk about one source, a very weird biology book from the 1880s called Sea and Land, written by a guy named James William Buell. Now, just glancing through this thing and looking at the author's introduction, it is obvious that this is not a source of credible scientific information. It's more one of those 19th century natural wonders books. You ever mm-hmm. seen these kind of things? Uh, where they're, you know, like, wow, look at all these illustrations of animals in their natural habitats, but they're all grossly inaccurate. And uh, it's full <laughs> really of, not all that different from uh, various versions of Pliny's work from previous times. Exactly. Except it's, you know, 1800 years later, yeah, less, or however, less, less whenever excuse. Pliny was living. Uh, yeah, exactly. So but it's got all these allegations of weird, sensational creatures mingled in with reports about real animals. And I, I have to also say, like a very Eurocentric sense of exoticism about mm-hmm. the planet. So there's that kind of unsavory element to it. But it's also full of gruesome and uh, probably highly inaccurate illustrations about various animals in attack mode. And some of these illustrations are great. There's a good one of an orangutan apparently kicking a man to death. One of a swordfish stabbing at a sailor through the hull of a boat. Not impossible. Extremely rare. But as we discussed in our Jumping Fish episode... It it has happened. Okay. Well, or well, individuals have been stabbed. Boats have been stabbed. I don't know if any. I don't. I don't remember a case a of both happening. That'd be yet. really bad luck. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in this case, it looks like the swordfish is trying to kill the guy. Oh, okay. But in any case, there's another one that's awesome. It's a giant crab hanging from a tree, lifting a goat up into the tree with its oh, claw man. as if to devour it. But then finally. A tree with tentacles pulling a human victim into the crown of its trunk. I, I have to say, uh, these different uh, accounts here, I couldn't help but think of uh, a Simpson episode. And I don't even remember the context, but there being a scene where a gr- like a gorilla is in a tree and uh, a shark comes out of the river underneath it and eats the gorilla. Um, <laughs> as an example of like natural predation or something. Oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, so Buell says that travelers have told him stories of a carnivorous plant that grows in Central Africa and South America. And he says it's so voracious it even resorts to eating humans. And I want to read a quote from the book. He says, quote, this marvelous vegetable minotaur <laughs> is represented as having a short, thick trunk from the top of which radiate giant spines, narrow and flexible, but of extraordinary tenaciousness, the edges of which are armed with barbs or dagger-like teeth. Instead of growing upright or at an inclined angle from the trunk, these spines lay their outer ends upon the ground, and so gracefully are they distributed that the trunk resembles an easy couch with green drapery around it. Uh, then he goes on to say that the unfortunate traveler will come along and, quote, the moment his feet are set within the circle of horrid spines, they rise up like gigantic serpents and entwine themselves about him until he is drawn upon the stump when they speedily drive their daggers into his body and thus complete the massacre. The body is crushed until every drop of blood is squeezed out of it and becomes absorbed again by the gore-loving plant when the dry carcass is thrown out and the horrid trap is set again. I'm... <laughs> Some elements of that sound reasonable, especially later when we get into real-world carnivorous plants and the, the idea that plants are living things that 
that live and move at an entirely different speed. And therefore, when you see like fast moving uh, action, such as from a Venus flytrap, it is very much like a uh, like a crossbow, a heavy crossbow that has been painstakingly loaded over time and then sprung. Yeah. So I could I could see this idea of like a sprung trap working within the conceivably working within the confines of uh, of of actual botany. Yeah, yeah, with a certain type of movement, you can imagine yeah. it. Less so when, uh, especially with something we're going to hear about in a second. Though I'd also want to add a funny note that, uh, in contrast to the passage I just read, that in the introduction, Buell says his purpose in writing the book is to, quote, bring us into a closer relation with and a better understanding and appreciation of the mysterious and infinite wisdom of nature's God. <laughs> Uh, I mean, th- th- that certainly sounds like a devil-created tree, <laughs> there ever is such a thing. But anyway, um, so Buell says that a gentleman of his acquaintance who lived sometime in Central America affirms the existence of a plant like this there, except with a, f- with a few variations. So he says that instead of lying on the ground, the filaments of the plant, quote, move themselves constantly in the air like so many huge serpents in an angry discussion, occasionally darting from side to side as if striking at an imaginary foe. Now, that sounds complete. That sounds like not a plant. Yeah, I mean, the the closest thing I can think to that is, say, like a pussy willow with with uh, the wind blowing through it, you know? Right. Uh, but anyway, he goes on to describe how this tree would crush its prey in an embrace of spines, and he compares it to the method of execution uh, from alleged medieval torture dungeons known as the Iron Maiden. <laughs> he also claims that in some regions, the locals are said to punish criminals by casting them into the tree, which is to anybody practicing witchcraft, you go straight into the tree, and that the plant is known as Yate Veo, Spanish for I see you, though I double-checked the translation, and apparently it has a tensed inflection, really meaning I already see you, huh. which is even a little creepier. I, I do like that a an almost certainly non-existent man-eating plant. The comparison is made to uh, the the almost certainly non-existent, uh, yeah. at least functional in functional terms, Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah, that that is the case, right? Like I've heard, there's no good evidence that Iron Maidens were actually used. Correct, is that right? That is my understanding. That they they became kind of a you know a, a, they became they were an invention and then took on a new life as kind of a, a fetish item for those that wish to possess torturous objects. Weird. Uh, anyway, I hate to be a downer, but I think we can be pretty certain that this is all a bunch of nonsense. Like this, this just <laughs> sounds like complete fabrication. There may be, it may, or maybe massive, massive exaggerations of something people actually saw that was in reality nothing like what's being described. Yeah. Uh, there are no trees with killer squid tentacles that we know of, and I don't even, I think we can just say there are no such trees because it doesn't make any biological sense to have trees with writhing tentacles that move around constantly. Yeah, the closest thing I can think of to this would, it would be the fact that, yes, vines grow on the ground and you could trip over a vine. Your leg could become entangled and you could hit your head on a rock or right. something. Right, yeah, sort of passive entrapment. Yeah. That, that makes more sense. But hardly a scenario that, that I could see... Um, plants evolving to utilize as part of their, you know, their primary survival um, tactic. Right. But we will talk about the biological possibilities of, of such a, you know, a megafauna eating plant later on in this episode. But uh, we should say that the Yate Veo and, and Buell's accounts here are not the only supposedly true accounts or at least presented as true by the by the recounters 
of uh, of these man-eating plants or these giant killer trees. Yeah, and these next two examples, like our previous two examples, are uh, exotic trees in a foreign land uh, as experienced or at least related by Westerners. Mm-hmm. So there's the Madagascar tree, and this was something of a sensation at the time appearing in publications of the 1870s. The idea here was that you had Western missionaries led by a German explorer, Carl Leachy, and they encountered a tribe of cave-dwelling tribespeople in Madagascar who made sacrifices to a man-eating plant. Hmm. Um, there's a, a fun uh, quote from this where they talk about the atrocious cannibal tree that had been so inert and dead came to sudden savage life. The slender, delicate palpy with the fury of starved serpents quivered a moment over her head, then as if instinct with demonic intelligence fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms, then while her awful screams and yet more awful laughter rose wildly to be instantly strangled down again into a gurgling moan. The tendrils one after another, like great green serpents with brutal energy and infernal uh, rapidity, rose, retracted themselves, and wrapped her about in fold after fold, ever t- Tightening with cruel swiftness and savage tenacity of anacondas fastening upon their prey. A little oh, applause yeah. for your reading there, Robert. Well, and that more was so dramatic. to whoever wrote it, because that's one tremendous uh, run-on <laughs> sentence. I love it. <laughs> it's true. You can't stop for a breath. That That is obviously some sensational detail. That does not sound like uh, like an account <laughs> intending on uh, clinical accuracy. Yeah, I, I do not buy it for a second. So some people have. Uh, the plant has achieved something of cryptid status. Mm-hmm. Even uh, the 27th governor of Michigan, <laughs> Chase Osborne, claimed that it was legit. Really? But no evidence has ever been presented and it seems to have been little more than a, a literary fabrication. Yeah, that just seems like another one of those kind of like uh, Eurocentric stories of the exotic weirdness of other lands. Yeah, I mean, another example, and I'm, I'm not going to go into the details on this one, but uh, Phil Robinson in 1881 writing in Under the Punka described tales of man-eating trees in southern Egypt. And this one is called The, the Nubian Tree. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I all these accounts, they really... They have this sort of ickiness to it of, oh, well, a, a Westerner being eaten. Westerners live in a special land where trees know their place and we're, we're above even predation by, by other vertebrates. But, but it's like everybody wants these things to exist. Like you yeah. can't stand the idea that they're not real. You just don't want them to be near you. They're, yeah. they're hidden in some other place where you don't live. A savage land full of savage people. Um, according to these recounters. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that that's like the, the only element at play here. I mean, also just like the idea of man-eating plants is really cool. I don't want to suggest that the desire to encounter a man-eating tree is necessarily linked to some kind of colonial xenophobia. Right. But, uh, but th- I feel like there are some elements there that are, that are a little icky to, uh, to modern readers. All right. Well, you know, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will we will ask the question, uh, indeed a question that uh, the Glenn Danzig may have asked, uh, why do plants kill? All right, we're back. Tell me, Joe, wh- why do why do the plants kill? Well, that is a good question, because in the realm of the well-known, of course, there are plants that kill. Oh, yeah. Right. So we've been talking about trees that prey on humans in, in these legendary accounts that are pretty obviously false. But there, there are plants that kill, not just with defensive toxins and thorns, but with predatory tactics. They've got specially designed morphological features to trap, 
poison, paralyze, dissolve, and digest prey animals, generally insects. These are the predatory flora, if you will, the eaters. <laughs> so let's discuss a few scientific facts about the eaters. Uh, first, I think we should ask the question, why would a plant kill to eat? I mean, think about yeah. it for a second. A defining feature of what makes a plant, the plant kingdom, is the fact that plants, unlike us, are autotrophs. They make their own food. So the energy that they need to survive, they get from photosynthesis. There's energy in the sunlight coming down from the sky, and they use that energy from pure sunlight to create a chemical reaction where they react carbon dioxide from the air and water in the end producing chemical energy in the form of glucose, sugars. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the energy economy of life on Earth, generally speaking, plants are the only ones with a with an ethical get-out-of-jail-free free card, right? Like yeah, they, they, or, every, well, I mean, I guess you also microorganisms that are well, autotrophs, but yeah. yeah. But, but everything else is having to consume something else for its energy, it has to steal its energy. But here we have all these plants getting their energy from the sun. Well, seems I, cut and dry. I wouldn't let them off the hook too much for the uh, for the ethical quandaries because plants and well, not necessarily plants, but autotrophs did some atmospheric engineering that led to oh, great yes. extinction events and killed probably more <laughs> organisms than any meat eater ever has. This is true. Yes. But anyway, so plants get most of their energy from this harmless process. Why would they ever need to trap an insect and digest it? That just seems like it's uh, it's redundant. It doesn't make any sense. And to find the answer, we can look at where these carnivorous plants usually live. So most often you're going to find them in inhospitable growing conditions, the nutrient poor soil of bogs, Mm -hmm. fens and swamps, places where there might be plenty of access to sunlight, hopefully water, too. But in the words of the old man from Pet Cemetery, the ground is sour. Ah. There is not enough nutrition in the ground. So what does nutrition mean for a plant? This is the first fact, by the way. Carnivorous plants eat for nutrients, not for energy. They don't need the chemical energy within you. They need your compounds or your molecules. So just like human beings, plants rely on the environment for essential nutrients, right? So if if you're stuck in an environment where you get plenty of food energy through sugar, but you have no dietary access to some essential nutrient like vitamin C, your health will deteriorate. You've probably read about this on uh, on old like ships, you know, the, the sailors oh, yeah, out yeah. on the man of war or whatever. Scurvy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So without vitamin C, you're going to start to experience some not so great symptoms. You're going to have dry, splitting hair, rough, scaly skin, inflamed gums and gum bleeding, nosebleeds, wounds and bruises that won't heal. This is all because your body can't synthesize vitamin C on its own. You have to get it from your diet. And eventually, if your diet is really deficient in vitamin C, you're going to develop scurvy in which you experience extreme fatigue, loss of strength in the connective tissues all over your body, like your body needs vitamin C in order to make collagen these for these connecting tissues. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you're also going to have fragility in the walls of your blood vessels, which is as not good as it sounds. Likewise, plants need essential nutrients too, right? They, they can't make everything they need to survive within their bodies. They have to get it from their environment. And one example of this is nitrogen. Mm. So most plants get nitrogen through their roots from the soil around them. They reach out into the ground with all of their roots and they pull up these molecules. They pull up these nitrogen atoms from the ground and, uh, If the soil is nitrogen poor or it gets robbed of nitrogen somehow, like apparently this can happen if there's over introduction of carbon into the soil, 
Plants in the area can suffer nitrogen deficiency, which is kind of a scurvy for plants. You see, with this stunted growth, leaves turning yellow and pale and body structures that look kind of wilted or sick. So if you are the plant equivalent of a vitamin C-starved sailor with bleeding gums and fragile joints living in this nutrient-poor soil, where do you get your essential nutrients? Well, you could snatch up and digest something that has plenty of nutritious molecules in it like an insect. You know, and and uh, we discussed in a previous episode, the weird mushroom episode, that you see this exact scenario play out with with oyster mushrooms. Oh, yeah? Uh, in which there's a nitrogen uh, deficiency, and therefore they have uh, adapted to prey on nematodes and, in some cases, spiders. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then, of course, we turn around and eat the oyster mushrooms. Well, so they are who's, delicious. who's tasting who? <laughs> You never eat a spider on purpose, but who knows how many times you you oh, get one oh, yeah, down the chain. That's the old myth, right? The average person eats sixty spiders a night. I think they just crawl right in there. That's a myth, right? That's <laughs> that, not true. That's an yeah. That's an exaggeration of a myth uh, on my part. All right. So, <laughs> oh, so what well, else do we have? Okay. So here's another fact about carnivorous plants. Uh, so the this trick, this insect eating trick, in order to get nitrogen and other nutri- nutrients that the plant needs. It's a good trick, and for that reason, the carnivorous phenotype evolved multiple times independently. So there was no one carnivorous ancestor plant that all carnivorous plants today can be traced back to. This is an example, or scientists think this is an example of what's known as convergent evolution. So it would be kind of like flight. Mm -hmm. There's no one flying animal that all flying animals today evolved from. Flight is a solution that was reached by evolution in different branches of the tree of life independently and at different times. Right. Uh, At car- least three different times. Yeah. Uh, carnivory in, in plants is the same way. It's a survival strategy that's so good, different branches on the tree of life adopt it separately in separate evolutionary contexts. Uh Let's go to a third fact related to the previous one. Carnivorous plants come in a lot of different varieties. You're probably familiar with Venus flytraps. Yeah, they're the superstars. Yeah, but they're not the only ones. There are multiple different types of carnivorous plants. It actually occurs in, uh, uh, according to one source, I found at least nine families, 19 genera, and 600 species of plant. And so it, it could be more by now. Yeah, I think just a few years ago, it was, I saw a source saying 500. So we uh, apparently just continually are discovering new examples of this. Yeah. So what are the different types of carnivorous plants? Well, you have a few different models, a few different methods out there. Uh, first of all, snap trap plants, Venus fly traps, water wheel plants. This is the, the, the iconic example of the little trap that slowly opens and then a fly lights in the middle and the gates close over it. So it's it's kind of a trigger plate kind of. Yeah, it exactly it has a trigger plate. It works very much like a like like a set like a like a wolf trap or a fox trap or a bear yeah. trap, right? And uh and these are, you know, these are famous because they're beautiful. They're they're relatively easy to cultivate uh, or at least buy at a store and keep alive for a certain period of time in your home. Right. I um, I had one when I was a kid one time. Yeah. Uh in I think consolation for the fact that my mom took me to a very long boring time at a plant nursery where she was buying some <laughs> flowers or something I asked in return to to get this Venus flytrap and I got it. And it was very cool, but I, I recall I got it home and I couldn't get it to close on anything. Oh yeah, I, I remember being—I never had one as a kid, though. Certainly, it would be the only plant I would have been interested in as, as a child. I had—I had one for a while, maybe ten years ago. Uh, my wife and I had one called Monster Tom, 
And we kept hoping it would catch flies. Like it would be one of those things where you would let a fly live in the house because you're like, all right, let Monster Tom take care of it. And I don't uh-huh. think Monster Tom ever ate a single fly, but it was still huh. a beautiful little plant to have around. I wonder if the domesticated Venus fly traps have gotten soft. You know? Maybe. <laughs> they just Maybe. don't prey on flies like They just they know they've to. got to have like big, beautiful eyelashes, right? I mean, because. Right. Uh, but of course, the, these, these are known as the snap trap plants, and they're not the only kind. This also includes water wheel plants, right? Mm-hmm. Did we say that? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, but there are plenty of other kinds too. Well, like, h- how about pitfall traps? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the main example of this being, uh, pitcher plants. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is one I, I believe they have them in Newfoundland, Canada, and that's where I kind of encountered them early on when really? I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, or at least some variety of them, because they're pretty widespread. And they, these are lovely specimens. The, the the leaves fold into deep, slippery pools filled with digestive enzymes. So it's essentially um, a champagne flute that's filled with insect death. Yeah, but with it's got this slippery slide going down into it. Yeah, so the the insect light slides down, it's caught in the goo, and uh, dissolves. So it's 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 kind of monstrous, but also they're beautiful plants. So you yeah. see them a lot of botanical gardens. Yeah. I'm always seeing them. Often with some kind of uh, chemical attractant to, to bring the insects in, right. Right? to the lure them thing. down. Uh, and then there, there's something I read about the special surfaces, right? Like the surfaces on the lip of the pitcher plant become slippery when wet, so it's hard to scramble back up them. Mm-hmm. You just kind of slide uh, ineluctably down into the pit. Yeah. And of course it's worth, uh, worth reminding everyone that like one of the key things here is that, uh, is that plants and insects have had a long history with insects serving as pollinators for, for so, for so many different, uh, uh, plant varieties. Oh yeah. There's actually a study about that. I, I want to mention in a few minutes here, but anyway, uh, the pitcher plants. Yeah. That, so there, there, there are numerous varieties of this and, the earliest fossil evidence of a carnivorous plant might be a pitcher plant. Uh, the mid-early Cretaceous uh, Archaeomorpha longicervia uh, was discovered in what's now northeastern China. And researchers are now split on the matter with newer research arguing that it might not be a pitcher plant at all. Some of the others, especially the earlier papers, uh, saying that, oh, this, this definitely is a pitcher plant or at least sort of a proto pitcher plant. And so it's, it's kind of a problematic fossil. Okay. Uh, right now, but there's a possibility. Other than that, that there's not a whole lot of fossil evidence of carnivorous plants. So any dreams you might have, uh, out there, listeners for a, for a, like a prehistoric, uh, like mammal. Like a giant thing, one. Yeah, like a giant one that's eating dinosaurs or prehistoric mammals. Uh, well, it's not in the fossil record at any rate. Man, that's a bummer. Prehistory yeah. gives us giant toads, giant scorpions, but no giant carnivorous plants. I know. Of course, there are other varieties of carnivorous plants as well. There are lobster trap plants. Oh, these are great. Mm-hmm. These are they go by the pickle jar principle, right? Yeah, like yeah. You, you reach in, you grab the pickles, and you can't get your hand back out. Right, or or indeed, as the name implies, lobster traps, various crab traps. Does anyone uh, who's ever used these know that uh, you know, the, the creature crawls in, but then it can't get out again? Yeah, and that's exactly how the, these plants uh, do that with uh, through special structures um, that that end up trapping the creature. Yeah, I think there's a certain element of this in, uh, I think it's actually a, a type of pitcher plant, but it ha- there's an element of easier to get in and apparently easy to get out until you're inside. Yeah. In, uh, in the cobra lily, this cool example of an American carnivorous plant that I found, it grows in, I think, northern California and southern Oregon, uh, and it's this beautiful looking 
plant that has a has a, a pitcher and is in some way carnivorous, but it's got an opening on the bottom, and then the top it's kind of translucent, so the light can come through. Mm-hmm. So I assume to an insect, it looks kind of like you can exit through the top until you get inside. All right, up next we have sticky traps, mm. aka flied paper traps. And examples here include sundews and butterworts, so the leaves exude a, uh, a sticky substance that catches lighting insects. Okay. Pretty, pretty basic, but yeah. hey, it's a winning design. Ugh, I mean, I've, I've got the willies from glue traps because I know the stories of people who've u- tried to use glue traps to catch rodents in their house, and that's just a, a yeah, sad scene. The, yeah, the, the tragedy of, of glue traps is that they sound humane on the surface of things. It, not at but all. But they're, they're not at all, especially when you, when you realize that reptiles, uh, that gets caught in them, they're gonna suffer a long time because yeah. they've evolved to, to, to go a long time between meals. Uh, so hey, if you do, I, I have had to remove a snake from a glue trap before, and if Ugh. you use oil, uh, that'll really help. I think, I think we used olive oil and we were able to free a, a specimen. So, oh wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, well, I don't know if it's amazing. I didn't know you were such a hero, Robert. Well, it was... Uh, That's I, I, like, a, can you come get my cat out of the tree? Can you come get my snake out of a glue trap? Well, I have you, I have found that if I am if I encounter an animal with my son, I'm often even more humane. Like, not, not so much snakes, because I generally am going to be cool with snakes. But this most recent trip, we came across some black widow spiders. Whoa. And, uh, like, actually three, like, really close to um, to a house. And, uh, you know, n- normally once the instinct that I grew up with is if you find a black widow spider, you, you go ahead and kill it because it's, you know, it's a highly, uh, it's, it's not a good animal to have around. You don't want that thing, uh, biting you, right? I feel like we should learn to resist that impulse. I think so too. I, I, like, you know, if it's not hurting us, then we shouldn't crush it. So we just checked it out. We actually caught one and put it in a little glass and looked at it for a little bit and then released it further away from the house. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, there is one other major type of of, uh, of carnivorous plant, right? The these suction traps. Yes, these involve highly modified leaves in the shape of a bladder with a hinge door lined with trigger hairs. Mm. Uh, so these are the ones, if if, uh, if I'm picturing them correctly, um, these are the ones that kind of remind one of uh, of of pipe organs with a little bit on the hmm. top, yeah, like a little lid on the top of the organ, huh? Pipe, yeah. Okay, I, I don't or, think I've ever seen that. Well, wait, so or maybe I, it's I more like a no, no. It's more like the I'm, I'm I'm comparing it to cartoons. I think in my mind we have like a, a steam engine or something, and they have the little top that flips up on the top of the the exhaust pipe. Oh yeah, yeah, kind of similar to that. Okay, uh, so hey, let's hit the next fact about carnivorous plants. Among the killer pr- plants, you've got a couple different uh, major varieties, right? So you've got carnivores, and then you've got the proto-carnivores, oh. proto-carnivorous plants. So what would, what would we mean by that? A proto-carnivorous plant is a plant that has the tendency to catch and kill prey, but doesn't yet have the capacity to directly digest the meal. So, for example, there are some pitcher plants that do not produce their own digestive enzymes, but rely on bacteria to dissolve organic matter in the traps. And some botanists would class protocarnivorous plants as uh, taxons that are part of the way there, right? They're on the evolutionary path to becoming carnivores. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting when we consider that 
that many carnivore lineages, you know, they enter into the carnivore game via proto carnivore lifestyles. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 kind of like seeing evolution in action, uh, and and I can't uh, help but uh, consider the relationship between figs and fig wasps. Huh. That's here, interesting. Which I think is a great example of you know a complex relationship, uh, really a mutualistic relationship between plant and a, a particular insect species. I've never heard this mentioned as an example of, of a carnivorous plant, but Robert, tell us how it goes down. What, okay. What's the relationship? All right. Well, uh, again, it's a mutualistic relationship, but there, there's some, uh, there's some nutrients absorbed too, uh, at the end <laughs> of the story. Uh, oh. so but the basic scenario here is that fig trees need wasps to transport pollen from one plant to the other. Okay. The plant provides a uh, fig wasp with their only source of food and shelter. Um, what we call a fig is actually a structure called a syconium, and it's really more of an inverted flower than a fruit with all of its reproductive parts located inside. Huh. And after a female fig wasp flies over from her home fig plant, she has to travel to the center of the syconium to lay her eggs. And to get there, she climbs down a narrow passage called the osteole. A uh, passage is so cramped that she scrapes off her wings and her antenna during the descent. It's just a real, real nightmare scenario. And then once inside, there's no getting back out and flying to another plant. Uh, it's like, like finding a narrow hole in a cemetery and climbing down into a grave, just ripping a bunch of skin off in the process. Wow. And then when she's down there, well, she better hope she's in the right place uh-huh. because fig plants boast two kinds of figs, male capra figs and then female edible figs. If she uh, if she winds up in an edible uh, fig, she eventually dies from exhaustion or starvation. She can't lay her eggs there. The stylus uh, is in the way, but she at least delivers the pollen, which is kind of a cool, tr- a cruel trick. Right. Right. Uh, we see the mutualistic aspect here. Uh, but it also kind of breaking down, right? Like the right. plant, get- the plant gets what it wants, but the wasp doesn't get what it wants. Okay. Now, if she enters the male capra fig, she'll find male flower parts uh, perfectly shaped to hold the eggs. She'll eventually lay the eggs grow into larvae, which then develop into male and female wasps, uh, which emerge. Huh. Uh, yeah. After hatching, the the blind wingless, wingless male wasp will spend the remainder of their lives digging uh, tunnels through the fig. The female wasp then emerge through these tunnels and fly off to find a new fig carrying pollen with them. Wow. Now, in that the, is a crazy process. Yeah, it is. It's 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 wondrous. wondrous. I, I had figs in in my backyard this this year, and uh, I thought about it every time I went out there to check on them. Well, wait, then is it accurate to say that in some sense the fig tree is consuming the wasp that is stuck inside it? Yes, because this is what happens in the death fig. Um, when a female wasp dies inside an edible fig, an enzyme in the fig called ficin breaks down her carcass into protein. So the fig basically digests the dead insect, making it a, a part of the resulting ripened fruit. And the crunchy uh, the crunchy bits in the figs, though, are seeds, not uh, anatomical parts of the wasp, in case anyone was wondering. Now, one thing I do think about here is that... <laughs> A fig tree doesn't seem to me to be something that is suffering from a lack of nitrogen or, or some other nutrient, or or is it? I mean, that, that's not my understanding that it's necessarily suffering. But uh, it just gets some kind. Maybe even if it could survive without these wasps, I'm I'm not saying I know that it could, but even if it could, it it just gets a little extra boost. 
I guess it's like using every part of the buffalo, right? I mean, the, the wasp is in there. It's it's not going anywhere. Right. Why uh, not digest it? Why not digest it? I mean, to sort of anthropomorphize the uh, the evolutionary process here a bit. But it's it's an interesting example, I think, of of certainly a complex relationship, a mutualistic relationship, where it's kind of like thinking of it as a corporation, right? Mm-hmm. So you have you have fig tree. Corp, or you know, and they have all these different departments, and most of the ter- departments are related to fruit production and uh, and and wasp relations. But there is definitely a wasp dissolving and digesting department. <laughs> it's not the primary department. It's, it's not, in the basement. Yeah, it's in the basement, but it still plays a role in the overall company structure. Okay, okay, uh, and it's you always got to put the payroll in. Yeah. Now, I wanted to see if there was inter- any interesting new research from this year on uh, on carnivorous plants. And I came across one paper I thought was kind of interesting. It's called uh, Pollinator Prey Conflicts in Carnivorous Plants, When Flower and Trap Properties Mean Life or Death, from Scientific Reports, published this year in 2016. And it was studying uh, plants of the genus Drosera, which are the sundews, right? We talked about those, the, the sticky trap plants. Mm-hmm. And it studied how the plants solve a particular problem. If you've thought about this, if you're a carnivorous plant that wants to draw insects into a death trap, but you're also a flowering plant that wants insects to spread your pollen for reproduction, how do you make sure that you don't trap and kill the insects that you need to pollinate your flowers? Um I'm about to say a metaphor for this. That might be the worst metaphor I've ever tried on this show. So, so stop me if I'm going off the rails. <laughs> well, they can't all be zingers. It, it's kind of like if, if you couldn't have sex without the help of a certain species of live wild rat, <laughs> but you also have rat traps all over your house. Okay. Like kill traps. This would seem to lower your reproductive fitness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead, what the, the Drosera plants do in the study is they, they offer different visual, spatial, and chemical signals that selectively attract non-pollinators to the traps. So that they've adapted to have selective appeals in the traps versus in the uh, the pollinating structures. Well, it's kind of like imagining these... Um these hotels and horror movies where they cannibalize the guests. Yeah. Like you got to keep your Yelp rating up enough yeah. where you get more guests. Exactly. You've got to have enough real guests. Yeah. But then at the same time, you need guests to eat. So you got to find that balance. Yeah. Uh, so in, in my horrible analogy, it would be sort of like having traps that are designed to, to kill all the rats except your sex rat that you need for reproduction. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's discuss the real carnivorous plants, the plants that really do prey on vertebrates. Okay, well, we've got to start by discussing the alleged okay. pre- ones that prey on vertebrates. So the one I want to start with is the Puya chilensis. So this is a bromeliad plant that grows in the arid parts of the Andes in South America. It's known as Puya chilensis, and it's sort of, uh, because it's a bromeliad, it's going to be a cousin of, like, the pineapple. And it kind of okay. looks like a pineapple. It looks like a giant woody pineapple with yellow-green spikes extending out at an inclined angle from the trunk. And it has been widely reported on popular websites and a few news sources that this plant is known as the, quote, sheep-eating plant. Huh. Because it sometimes feeds on the carcasses of livestock caught in its spines. 
For example, there's a 2013 BBC News piece about how the Royal Horticultural Society in Great Britain managed to grow one of these plants in a greenhouse in Surrey. And the story was about how the plant was about to flower. I think it takes a long time to do that. But the article claims, quote, In the Andes, it uses its sharp spines to snare and trap sheep and other animals, which slowly starve to death. The animals then decay at the base of the plant, acting as a fertilizer. The RHS feeds its specimen on liquid fertilizer. And then they quote a horticulturist saying that obviously it would be problematic to feed this plant, quote, its natural diet. (laughs) Um, So despite these reports, most of which sort of repeat the same thin summary claims over and over, mm-hmm. over and over. I, I have been unable to find any evidence in the scientific literature that these plants are really known to do this, to trap and kill large animals like sheep. And honestly, looking at a bunch of pictures of them, I'm also having a hard time seeing how this would happen. Like, they look like they would be painful to fall into, but not deadly traps. Uh, also, I've read a few accounts of people who claim to work around the Puya and don't report anything about this. So this makes it seem to me like this phenomenon of sheep becoming trapped in Puya growth, dying, and then fertilizing the base of the plant is something that maybe conceivably could happen by coincidence. Like, I guess I, you could accept that rotting animal flesh is generally a decent fertilizer. Yeah. Uh, but that probably doesn't happen often enough to qualify as a real evolutionary adaptation by the plant. Yeah, and plus, I mean, there are plenty of animals that are already going to play prey on a sheep. And then if you were having sheep that are raised in a, you know, basically an artificial population of sheep, they're going to be there's going to be a higher susceptibility to strange and unnatural deaths, right? Yeah, so I, I'm skeptical of this one. I, I think unless somebody can send us some really good evidence that this actually takes place, I'm going to say this one actually looks like a myth to me that okay. has somehow made it into news reports. I think that is a safe bet. Uh, but then there's another one that is definitely not a myth, though we have to be a little careful in how we characterize it. So I want to talk about Nepenthes, the tropical pitcher plants. Oh, okay. So th- these are pitfall traps, right? Like we've talked mm-hmm. about pitcher plants where they've got a uh, they've got a deep well that has some killer fluids in it, and they want you to fall in, get stuck, and die and dissolve. Now, it's uh, it's definitely worth saying that the natural prey of these plants are invertebrates. They're going to be insects. Uh, but some of these traps can grow like more than 40 centimeters deep or hold up to two liters of digestive fluid. That's huge. That's yeah. like a, you know, that's like a big soda bottle. <laughs> like with some of its various species having traps this big, it's sort of natural to wonder if anything bigger than an insect ever gets digested. And I'd say the answer appears to be both no and yes. So like I said, first of all, in- invertebrates are clearly the main prey of these plants. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they appear insectivorous by evolutionary design. But animals come into the picture as well. One one sense is more mutualistic. Like there are several pitcher plants that seem to have this non-predatory symbiotic relationship with vertebrates like birds, bats, and shrews. And it works like this. You've got a pitcher and it's got sweet nectar all along the outer surface. And a bird or a forest rodent comes along decides, I want some of that nectar. And while it's hanging out at the opening of the pitcher plant, it just happens to deposit some feces inside. Now, normally you would not expect an organism to have an adaptation that incentivizes animals to poop inside it. But guess what those feces are rich in? 
nitrogen. Ah, okay. Yeah, the, exactly the nutrients that the plant would normally need to get by killing insects. So there are types of pitcher plants that also seem to provide like a roosting shelter for bats as well, and the bats do the same thing. They poop into the plant, and the plant gets some sweet nitrogen out of it. Okay. But with some of the larger tropical pitchers, what if a small mammal were to fall all the way in? Ah. Would it be able to get out? And if not, would the plant eat it? I think the answer is ding, ding, ding. You bet. Oh, see, so, this is this nightmare scenario I encounter anytime I use a composting toilet. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, those things smell bad enough anyway. Yeah, even when they don't. I was in a really good one uh, last week. Oh, I shouldn't badmouth. I'm, I'm sorry. I've been near one that smelled really bad. But it's still horrifying because especially like in my case, I'm putting my son on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, he could just fall right down there. And then I guess I'd have to go down there too and oh. fight the, the fluke man, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, man. This is a horrifying scenario, falling into a pitcher trap. God. Yeah. So, so here's the evidence. There is a photo and video documentation online of a Nepenthes research exp- expedition that took place uh, first in October 2012. And they were going to Mount Victoria in the Philippines. And they were studying specimens of Nepenthes attenboroughii, named after... Oh. Our, our favorite Attenborough. Oh, that's nice. Uh, endemic to the region and uh, with the species, not and not Attenboroughs. <laughs> but they found one picture of this plant that contained a wild-caught dead tree shrew, and they showed it in photos and on video. And a return expedition two months later showed the skeletal remains of the shrew covered in a sort of layer of fur. So essentially all the soft tissues of the tree shrew appeared to have been digested by the plant. Hmm. So does the pitcher plant naturally target vertebrate mammals as prey? Probably not. But if there's one on offer, yeah, don't mind if I do. That seems to be the approach. But now the real question is, could it be possible for a real world plant to be the man-eating tree, the, the killer tree that would trap and kill large megafauna like a deer or a bear or a human being? Hmm. Or even something like a raccoon, right? I mean, oh yeah, it's settled like, for a raccoon, yeah. medium size. Yeah, because because the even the the bat possibility and the shrew possibility is kind of iffy, right? So anything larger than that, it becomes increasingly fantastic. Yeah. So I will say first of all, I found no evidence that a plant like this already exists. So I'll start with the bad news. But the good news, or maybe the bad news, who knows what's good and bad? It, anymore, it depends where you stand on plants killing and eating humans. Is that there are some interesting leads? So first of all, I, I want to consider the possibility of a proto carnivorous bramble trap. So I watched a video blog, and this is not scientific information. This was a video blog by an Irish sheep farmer. And this guy was personally insisting that the blackberry brambles on his land are carnivorous, or he called them carnivorous. I think more accurately, you would call them Mm proto-carnivorous, but uh, if he's correct. But here's his argument. He says... By demonstrating, uh, how his sheep become trapped in these brambles all the time, they get, the, like, they get their woolly coats caught in the hook-like thorns, and then they struggle and they get more and more tangled in the branches as they struggle to escape. That's kind of interesting. I guess yeah. the idea is that they get caught, 
They can't escape. They die. It's kind of like what was being alleged with the Puya chilensis, uh, that they would fall down near the base of the plant, rot, and fertilize the soil. Well, even if they, in doing this, if they didn't kill the animal outright, if they, even if they didn't allow starvation to occur, they could con- conceivably, you could conceivably have the plant just holding it long enough for a predator to come take advantage of it eat part of it, and hmm. then, but still leave portions of the creature to rot. Oh, that's interesting, too. I hadn't thought about that. Pure conjecture. Now, I, I do want to say I'm not going to endorse the hypothesis of carnivorous brambles here, mm-hmm. because I think we don't have evidence that, that that's necessarily what's going on. Uh, I think you'd have to demonstrate that this is actually an adaptation towards which bramble evolution was shaped. Like, were there similar woolly animals native to the regions wherever these plants evolved? Uh, would one of these animals rotting at the base of the bramble plant really pr- provide enough nutrition incentive to make a major difference in survival and reproduction? Like, are... It would the would the nutrients it provides matter enough for this to be an evolved trait that is targeted by selection? Yeah, because to come back to the fig uh, tree scenario, think of it as a, a well run corporation. Yeah. At what point does do the do the masters uh, the, do the do the CEOs or the board of directors or whatever? We're going to invest in the processing division. Yeah, it's like tell me more about this uh, this 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 sheep eating uh, division that you're working on this project. Hmm. All right, let's hire some more people. Let's uh, let's invest more in that and let's uh, bump it up in the overall hierarchy. Exactly. So I, I haven't seen evidence that that's what's going on with the brambles yet. But given all these questions, I do want to say I could believe it's possible that some bramble type plant could establish an evolutionary pathway toward proto-carnivory and eventually full carnivory, starting with accidental snaggings, accidental snagging of sheep and other unfortunate creatures that are covered in suicide Velcro. <laughs> you know, this reminds me of a of a specimen that I encountered in Arizona last week, and that's the death's claw or harvogophytum, also known as a, a grapple plant or a wood spider. Oh, wood spider. Yeah. That it, is gold. They're pretty gnarly looking. Um, they... They're, they're from the sesame family, huh. but they're a hooked fruit. So it, it starts when it's growing initially, it kind of looks like a weird green banana. And apparently it can be consumed. Uh, we did, I did not eat one, but I was told that yes, some people have things they can do with these. Um, but, uh, it, it starts off like a banana and then it kind of splits in the middle. And so it ends up like if, imagine you're, like your hand making the devil horns. Mm-hmm. And then imagine if you had super long curvy fingernails. On both of the uh, protruding fingers. Okay? Nasty. Yeah. And so the, what it does is uh, when a, a mule deer or a pronghorn, a horse, or even a human comes along, uh, it latches onto the, the ankle. Mm-hmm. These, these, uh, these, the, the devil horns here latch around and it becomes, and it carries the, uh, the, the fruit across, uh, you know, long distances. Um, and uh, it doesn't does not hurt the animal in question. And actually, they seem to have anti-inflammatory properties that are utilized in some folk medicines. Huh. But if this is possible, yeah, why not a grappling mammal killing root as well? Yeah. I, again, I guess we'd have to come back to the question of is the incentive there? Right. Is, is the evolutionary incentive big enough to work on these powerful structures? Yes. Another yeah. way to ask this question, another scenario for this. How about a human-sized snap trap? Sort of uh, like what I pictured in the, the grove of the killer tree at the beginning. Uh, so imagine this. It's a Venus flytrap large enough to capture and digest a deer or a bear or a human. Like not, not so much a necessarily like a Little Shop of Hara's Audrey 2, but just a giant Venus flytrap. Just a, yeah. a, a 
a, a trap. Yeah, it doesn't need enough. to sing. Yeah, it doesn't need to sing or to leap out, but just large enough to lay a trap that could snag a larger creature. Yeah. So uh, there are obviously plants that move quickly. The Venus flytrap is one example of them. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, plants usually exhibit very slow motion, motion that's expressed through growth patterns rather than through uh, fast moving of plant tissues. But there are plants that have fast moving tissues. You touch a fern and sometimes the leaves can close. The Venus flytrap can snap closed. I'm not sure how big and how sturdy you can scale up those fast movements in plants. Like, yeah. I, I've never seen a plant with huge, strong structures that exhibit fast movement. All the, all the ones I know of with fast moving body parts tend to be pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime you, I mean, you see the same thing when you're talking about giant gorillas, right? Yeah. Anytime you scale up morphology, you're going to run into various engineering limits and you end up having to change the design in order to make it conceivably work. And then in some cases, is it even possible to upscale that design? Yeah. But let's just imagine. Let's say, okay, imagine you can scale up fast moving plant body parts. Okay. Uh, still a couple problems here. It doesn't take a lot of con- compression strength to hold in a fly or a spider, but imagine how many pounds of compression force it would take to hold in a human or a bear that's fighting to get out of a trap. Yeah. This would have to be a really strong, big, powerful plant. And I guess my question is, why would a plant evolve such an extravagant morphological contrivance? And does it even make sense to imagine how it gets to there? Because remember, carnivorous plants tend to practice animal predation in order to offset nutrient deficiencies in the soil, right? That's the whole reason we go back to. They're growing in inhospitable conditions. They can't get the nitrogen or some other nutrient they need. So they need to prey on animals to get those little, those little molecules. But would an organism grown in such poor soil be able to attain human trapping size to begin with? Like, how does it get that big and that powerful if it hasn't been trapping humans the whole way? Would it have to, it, it would have to sort of like be scaling up as it goes, catching bigger and bigger animals as it gets bigger. Yeah. And why would you well, why would that why would it evolve to depend on increasingly larger and increasingly, um, you know, more rare uh, specimens? Why, yeah. why would it would be making its it's it, there would be there would be a tipping point where it would just be making its work harder for itself. Yeah. And uh, and therefore there would be less uh, less uh, it would be less advantageous to its uh, evolutionary ascent. Yeah. And another thing to remember, as we've said on the show before, in evolution, we've always got to keep in mind bigger is not necessarily better. It seems better to us because we like bigger trucks, but. Bigger bodies are not necessarily better. Organisms will not tend to grow larger unless there's a clear survival advantage or reproduction advantage. Right. It comes down to what the environment will bear, what's competitive. Yeah. I just just a few seconds ago, I, I said evolutionary ascent, which we often use in talking about humans. But that's kind of a misnomer because evolution, in the same way that there's no, no such it's thing as ladder. evolving, yeah. evolution is not an upward or downward movement. It is just a movement. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you start thinking about it in terms of there being a, a goal other than survival, other than propagation, then uh, you, you muddy the waters. So, yeah, the, the human sized snap trap, I'm going to say that that's something that maybe could be engineered. You know, I could imagine yeah. in the future, if you're you're tinkering with plant genomes, trying to create something weird, it, it's possible that, that that's sort of a a physical uh, something that's physically attainable in plant morphology. I don't know. It might not even be that. But even assuming it is that it doesn't seem like something that would arise in nature. Right. It would need to be a mad scientist 
scientist who decided he, you know, he or she wanted a large man-eating plant, maybe, uh, you know, an, an evil dictator who wanted it to live it at the bottom of a trap door or to continue for, feeding witches to. Yeah. Or how about this? How about a bio toilet for, for spaceship uh, gardens? So it, going back to the picture plant idea, encouraging animals to poop in it. Okay. Yeah. Like a compost, a bio, biological compost, uh, biologically engineered compost toilet. Or maybe it's engineered by a British nanny who is a <laughs> druid who has had her tree killed with a chainsaw that she used to worship for years. She needs a new god. And so she genetically, she studies genetics. She, you know, masters the art of CRISPR gene editing. And then she makes this thing. Uh, or has she just merely entered into contract with the space toilets? Who overthrew another alien species because they were tired of just being pooped into. Okay, Robert, I think we're done. Yeah, we've gone off the deep end here, but I think we've covered some, we've covered some fictional ground here. We've covered, covered some mythological, some cryptid ground, as well as the, uh, the, 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 the more solid soil of, uh, of actual scientific inquiry. And nothing ate us in the process. So I guess we're doing okay. <laughs> it would be a good way to go though. It would be a noteworthy way to go. Not a pleasant way to go, but yeah, it'd be good to be remembered. Yeah, yeah, because none of these scenarios, I think we can agree, none of the scenarios of carnivorous plants actually sounds pleasant. All of it takes place, the death ends up occurring at the slow rate that is uh, that is typical of of a plant's uh, slower approach to life. Yeah, you'd really be hoping a bear would come along and get into you. Yeah. All right, so there you have it, carnivorous plants. Um, hey, if you want to learn more about this topic, if you want to discover other topics than we've done, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts. Those include Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, uh, and who knows what will evolve in the future. We'll probably sign up for those as well and give you another way to interact with us and indeed tell us about any fictional carnivorous plants that we may have missed or we should explore, uh, as well as your thoughts on the possibility of a man-eating plant. And, of course, if you would like to continue to get tangled in the killer vines of this subject, you can email us with your thoughts about it and uh, any feedback on this episode or others at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 